So um, for this week and next week, I, I was working on this week's sermon, and I had three points that I, I didn't want to surrender any one of them. And so I could only fit one in. So we're, we're automatically behind already before we get started. What I want to do with you is I want to walk piece by piece um, through this text. Again, um, and, I'll, and I'm going to do it this way. That there are three important responsibilities for parenting revealed to us in this text. Three important responsibilities for parenting revealed to us in this text. And, and, and obviously, in order to get that, maybe we haven't thought of the Cain and Abel story as a great um, text for reaping the benefits of a, a vision for family rearing and child rearing. Um, but I, I think that there's much more here for us to consider by way of actions in the text and the implications of what is to be gleaned from the actions within the text that I want to uh, work with you for this week and next week through the same section of the text. So I want to go step by step. And, and if we're counting steps, we're just taking half a step this morning, not, not a full step. So we're just going to walk through the text and we're going to be in the same place where we were last week. But, but again, there, there's important data here for us to consider, particularly for those of us who are perhaps right now in the phase of rearing children. Um, and, and maybe some younger couples as well uh, looking for the days of rearing children. Um, uh, there, there's important things here for us. And I don't just bring it up because of that. But I, I think it's right here in the text that we need to consider it, whether um, we're in the phase of having children or not. It'll help us as we get to um, where we fast forward oftentimes with Cain and Abel as we get to the murder scene, as was read for you just a moment ago. That, 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 that's where we all kind of drive our minds to the major event of the text. But what I want you to consider with me is that there is a lot between verse 1, uh, where, where Cain is born, that transpires and takes place in his life with Adam and Eve and Abel before there's this rising up in the garden scene and murdering his brother. And I want you guys to consider it in light of the, what we might consider now a little bit more of what we call parenting. Once again, if I can start with you to enter into the world of the text as we join into the greater context and we appreciate the difficulties that are on the ground here in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 3, in the beginning of Genesis 4, consider the immense difference between life in paradise and life post-fall. The world in its totality, that is, if you think of it in terms of the universe, it is utterly changed. Its essence is different. Not just accidentally different, but essentially different. Every experience, every relationship, as we covered last week just briefly, even of the weather patterns, life in post-fall Eden outside of the garden is difficult. Essentially difficult. Not just in its totality or the sense of the expanse of the universe, but in its localities, the relationship between the man and the woman are absolutely different. The way that now we could read how they're different by going back up to the life that Adam's going to lead by the sweat of his brow and the life that she's going to lead and coming alongside of them and, and woman giving way to mother and bearing children. But then there's also this way in which they're not always going to be on the same page in everything that they undertake. The essence of experience in the world has changed. Now, there are many parts, as you would consider yourself uh, human, 
you think they're, they're, that it's very complex. Being a human being, there are many parts and components that make us a combination of pieces and moving parts. That is the human being. Think about it just for a moment. In the totality of the sin experience, post-fall, and its effect upon the whole person, your spirituality. What about the difficulty psychologically, post-fall? Life with insecurities? Life with emotional experiences that you interpret, either rightly or wrongly? Things are very different outside of paradise. Spiritually, psychologically, emotionally. The way you respond to highs and lows of life. Physically, everything is changing. We are now marching towards death from the day we're born. You experience highs and that sense of you're at your prime, and then it kind of slowly tapers down. You're still moving even at prime. You're still moving in this direction toward the grave. Life is different relationally. As I said, between the man and the woman, between husband and wife, between help me to not so helpful, between uh, dictator and godly leader, everything, everything. And I, I want you to appreciate that about the scenery of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Everything for the man and the woman in their relationship and in their offspring, everything in the world around them, even in the animal kingdom, their relationship to nature, everything is enmeshed in sin. There was no decay and now there is. And as we see here then, if you jump and you think with me in Genesis 4, place yourself in Adam's shoes just for a moment as we begin to look at the text in Genesis 4. Adam now, post-fall, as the head of the home, here is Adam set to lead his wife, right? She, has, she will leave her family and she'll be wed to a man and that, that, that man and that woman will become one flesh and he will be the leader of the home. And now post-fall, here is Adam, the head of the home, now facing the responsibility of rearing a family in a fallen world. That's the half step we're making this morning in the text. Again, think of it in these terms. Perhaps John and Christian are the closest to it at this point in time. The first sense of, I just realized that I now face the responsibility of rearing a child, to, to raising one. But consider Adam in this moment. Freshly outside paradise, head of the home, and now he has a responsibility of rearing a child. Not in paradise, but a sin-fallen and cursed world. Now, think about that just, again, for one moment, in Adam and Eve's context rather than our own. They had no knowledge of how to deal with sin and discipline in their children. Think about that. They never had examples as to how to raise their children, since they themselves were created mature and upright. Right? They had no compass, in other words. Uh, many of us, uh, and I think the way that it always goes, you're, you're either uh, trying to uh, maybe perhaps do what your parents had done, or, or you're over here perhaps doing absolutely nothing that your parents had done, or, or you're somewhere in that spectrum. But, but, but the point is, the, the, the fulcrum in which it's kind of moving is this experience that you as a human being had. 
that experience, you're weighing what your actions are, positively to do and negatively to withhold. You're making these choices based upon a formative time in your life that is typically the experience you had being raised by your parents. So for better or for worse, you have a contrast or an experience. You think, I'll do that with my children. I won't do that with my children. You have some way of mirroring it or not. To Adam and Eve, they did not. And although the child-rearing will prove indeed to be difficult, you think of all the small little examples of Cain and Abel being raised, two young boys, uh, perhaps twins, perhaps not. It's somewhat unknown. But they were close in age. We have kids, the Thomas family, close in age. The challenges that come with being, you know, just a little bit older, just a little bit younger in all that transpires in the relationships. It can be difficult to mine. But as we are certain of Adam as a man of faith and Eve as a saintly woman, they certainly possess some strength of character and derived applicational wisdom in some measure from their relationship with God. So what would we say of Adam and Eve at this point in the text? Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have Cained a man with the help of the Lord. And then here's a proud father, Adam, over Cain, the man of ability. I'm just going to be loud because I didn't wear a jacket today, and now I have the microphone right up underneath my chin. So hopefully I won't blow you away in the meantime. I should have thought of that before I got dressed. But verse 2 Adam, proud father, over Cain, and now coming with Abel. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. And yet, due to the brevity of their first family, the first family story, here we have proud Adam, undoubtedly, having two sons. But we certainly, as we look at the text, lack details regarding their approach to parenting. How did Adam father? And, and, and what can we learn about Adam's fathering and Eve's mothering in light of the event of his brother murdering? We lack details regarding their approach to parenting. But I, I want to like lightly touch on the fact, and I, and I want you to think with me, that we don't necessarily lack all evidence for the fruit of their parenting. We certainly lack the, the evidence for the approach. How did they, how did they, but, but we see an episode here that somewhat gives us an idea of some of the fruit of their parenting. And again, I'm, I'm going to tease this out. I'm going to prove it step by step with you. And, and so step two and step three uh, come next week. So see, now you have to come back because you're just going to be left with this you know, huge cliffhanger. Uh, no, I'm just going to give you one point. Um, but, but because it's not just an inference drawn from verse 2, but it will continue as we develop. We have some evidence for the fruit of their parenting. Choices that were right and perhaps choices that were wrong. We may wonder if we come to the text and we think of it as a human, genuinely a human story of the first family. We may ask ourselves, by the time we see the murdering scene of one brother rising up against another one, we may ask this question regarding Cain. 
Were Adam and Eve too permissive in their parenting? Were they too permissive? In other words, we call it spoiling. And again, maybe we think, oh, is that really taking place in the biblical world? Spoiling of children. Do we see children rise up who are just poisoned fruit because they've been spoiled away by mom and dad? Well, think, um, uh, here's another a narratival story that we see. And we do see it in multiple places. But one that we would stand out, perhaps, maybe to me, is um, this, this, this statement regarding in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1. I think it's verse 6. It's somewhere in chapter 1. But, but, it, but it's David. Here, David is passing off the scene, literally, physically dying. And as he's going away, one of his sons, Adonijah, sees it as a power grab. And, and, and there's a causal relationship between the, the, the narrative writer is trying to help you understand why did he see it this way? Why does Adonijah see it that way? Here's, here's his father passing off. And what is going on in his mind, in his heart? Same text. Chapter 1, so it's, it, it, it's working together to help you understand his motivations based on this awful context of a, of a father passing off. What, what are his sons doing? What, what, what are the movements? Like a chess match moving around is what they're doing. Why would they have that response? The text says uh, this. David is said to, quote, have never at any time displeased his son. By asking him, why have you done thus and so? That, that, that's the statement the writer leaves with you as to helping you interpret his actions toward his father. David never displeased him. He never told him no. So maybe we ask of Cain and his activity in the garden, we ask of Adam and Eve, were they simply too permissive in their parenting? Did they spoil him? Maybe we ask one other preliminary question before we get toward the text is asking this question, were they just too harsh? Maybe they were too militaristic. Maybe they were the Von Tromps, blowing a whistle and everybody lines up. Anybody seen the movie The Sound of Music? Perhaps not. Did they crush his spirit, destroy his sense of self-worth? Is that why he's behaving and lashing out at his brother? When the whole sacrifice situation develops, is it because they destroyed his self-worth and they crushed his spirit, raising him with an iron fist? Again, why is this a concern that we need to tease out and probe within the text? And, and, and I want to, to lay it before you that it is a worthy venture and that it's an important venture that is intended for us to consider uh, for these next two weeks. Because according to Scripture in the main, if, if you were to take Scripture in the whole from cover to cover and you considered this thought of parent and child relationship, I, I want to I give to you that there is some... and. and uh, I'll, I'll caveat it in a moment. So let me just read it through, and, and then I'll, I'll make my apologies after. But, but, but hear the force of the thought in, in the totality of Scripture. That Scripture in the whole, according to Scripture in the whole, there is some cause and effect relation that stands between a child's ultimate character outcomes and his or her parental upbringing. 
I, I want, and, and if you're, you're, you're um, someone secretly pregnant in here, or someone's just had children, or you're thinking of having children, or you possess children at the moment, I want you to feel the weight uh, of that idea. I, I want you to hear this thought and, and lay it up to your mind, to your heart. The, uh, uh, the, the weight of the text, according to Scripture in the whole, there is some cause and effect relation. This causes this that stands between a child's ultimate character outcomes and his or her parental upbringing. It is a causative relationship. Now, again, to my apologies. I know that the oldest child that I have is not in here. He's 11 years old. So I understand that, like, you know, I, I, I don't have it all figured out, and I haven't concluded the causal relationship and the way that I'm positively and negatively affecting Owen as he grows. I humbly lay that up before the Lord. We prayerfully consider the raising of our children. We consider texts such as this and others, and we try to do by grace the best that we can to address their whole person. I pray for them when they turn out in you know, 20s and 30s that uh, you know, we, we've laid that up to the Lord. But I must recognize as a father that there is a causal relationship, some degree of causal relationship between me as father and Owen as son in the final outcomes of his character development. Now again, I say I want to be cautious here to some degree because I don't know what the direct cause-effect relationship is. You know, if, if, if I did this, and now he turns out to think that, is this and that the exact identical cause-effect relation? It's impossible to know. But I can't shrink back my responsibility as father to recognize it is part and parcel of his story that I cannot absolve. Both for good that brings a father pleasure, and for sorrow, that brings a father great sorrow and sadness. Again, Proverbs 22.6, an additional text. I I say, I, I just want to give you two additional texts here, because I just said to you that scripture in the whole describes life in some cause and effect relationship. So I'm stepping outside of Genesis 4 before we step back into Genesis 4 just to strengthen the idea in your mind of the causal relationship between the the huge, immense responsibility of being a dad and being a mom. You guys probably know this reference. As we step outside Genesis and we go to proverbial wisdom of Proverbs 22.6, it's probably been quoted at you a million times or you've had to memorize it or you've quoted it back or you've contemplated and discussed it. I I, I submit it to you. That is this text about the causal relationship of, of, of a father, mother, and their children. That is, quote, train up a child in the way he should go. This is the, the, do you hear, do you hear the, 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 the command? Do you hear the word of force, the imperative? Train up a child in the way he should go. It concludes this way. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, again, this is addressing trajectories, either a positive trajectory or a negative trajectory. But it's talking about the parental responsibility and character outcomes. Again, train them up. Why? Because when they're old, they won't depart from it. 
Now, again, it's talking about trajectory. So you have this little one. You have a Cain. We have Cain. We have a firstborn. We have Abel, his brother. Parents, train them. Train them well in the way that they should go. And, And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Speaking of parental responsibility in the character outcomes of their children, both positively and negatively. You train them badly. And, and by rough statistical standard, they will turn out badly. Now, again, th- this can be caveated a thousand different ways with the grace of God. Many of us, uh, we could say, I, I wasn't perhaps in my mind now as a regenerate believer, I wasn't raised in the best stream. And look at the grace of God in my life. Praise the Lord. But as covenant families, it doesn't then absolve our responsibility to our children because they say, well, you know, hey, God knows. It, it, it doesn't, it, it's not that wave of the hand. It's train them so that they don't depart. And if you train them this way, chances are externally they won't depart. One more text. Would you turn there with me just briefly um, to Ephesians? Go go to Ephesians. Another text you're very familiar with, but I want to use it to make the case. Um, Ephesians chapter 6. One that is very well known. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm not even going to be able to finish this sermon. We're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. We'll figure it out. Ephesians 6. Um, again, you're thinking causal relations. Paul, uh, to the um, families at Ephesus, he says, children, as, you obey, as he addresses the covenant children of the church. These are little ones of every age. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's morally the right thing to do. It's upright. It's good standing. It's what God would require of you as little covenant children, that you'd obey mom and dad. It's morally right. And then he goes to specify the moral law. This is why we see the Ten Commandments continue to be an element of Christian character. Indeed, the Ten Commandments and the rule of life. Honor your father and mother. Notice what he then says, very importantly, as he speaks to the little ones. This is the first commandment with a promise. The first moral commandment given of our God in the ten, that are a rule for our living. It has a promise to it, to the little ones. That it may go well with you, and that you will live long in the land. Do you see, there's a richness and a fullness and a promise from God, their father, unto them as his covenant children when they obey mom and dad. And and you notice he he takes time. It's it's probably in your English translation parenthetical that he made this side comment. He's filling out the fruit to that little one, the word of promise. Obey your mom and dad. Do you realize how important that is to your little life? God has attached and annexed a promise of fullness to you to your little life of your inheritance in him when you obey your mom and your dad. Now, with all that spoken to the covenant children, look at how Paul addresses the head of the home who will oversee this relationship. Fathers. 
don't get in the way. He just spoke to these little covenant children. This is your life in the Lord. And it is going to give to you a promise of fullness and joy in your little life to mature your faith and to nourish your soul. Dad, don't get in the way. What do you mean? We'll, we'll look at the text. Don't provoke your child to anger. That's contrary to love and joy and obedience. Don't provoke him. Don't drive him from what is his in the Lord. What is hers in the Lord. Don't provoke them opposite of what I'm calling them to do. Obey him. No, here comes dad stomping in the room, throws down the iron fist and angers the entire room. His lack of injustice, or his injustice and his lack of equity, spoils the child against the Lord. Creates anger between him and the father. Don't get in the way. Okay? What should I do? How can I further the life of these covenant children in the Lord? What, what do I, as the head of the home, have to do? What does Adam and Eve, what did they, together, as a covenant family, what did they have to do to see their children obey and to see the Lord pour forth his blessing? Verse 4. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction belonging to the Lord. Do you see, it's not just random discipline. It's not, you know, instruction simply about the physical world. It's a Godward discipline and a Godward instruction. Do you see how this sentence constructs? Father, don't get in the way by being angry and provoking them to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, it's this mutually rewarding relationship between dad doing the right things and son and daughter receiving and doing the right things that set the backdrop to the Cain and Abel outcomes. It's a mutually rewarding relation. So transitioning back to the text of Genesis 4 then, let's consider it in light of Genesis 4. And our first parents, I would put forward to you as we move forward in the text. Again, here in Genesis 4, between what we know our families or parents are to do in the raising of their children, given Adam and Eve's wisdom and their relation with God, that indeed, by the time we see the episode of implosion between Cain and Abel, our first parents bear some responsibility for their children's ultimate character outcomes. As I said to you, I want to consider three important responsibilities for Christian parenting in light of this text, and I just want to give you the first one uh, this morning. And that is, um, out of the three, we'll cover two next week. The first one, please consider this about the role of Christian parenting or covenantal parenting. It is this, the parental responsibility to nurture your children the parental responsibility to nurture your children. And when I say the parental responsibility to nurture, what I mean is um, I want you, mom and dad, you young folks going to have children and contemplating a vision forecasted for for what it would be like to be a mom, to be a dad. Again, we all learn by experience. And again, I'm somewhere on the path 
Um, I'm, I'm not at the end looking back and kind of giving you elderly wisdom. Uh, so first fruits for you to consider, I, I want to encourage you, you can't farm that out. It's a parental responsibility to nurture your children. It belongs to no one else. It belongs to you. What I mean by nurture is simply this. Owning the process and encouraging the growth of your children spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically. That is, mom and dad, you own the raising of the whole child. That little one who has been given you of the Lord, or in some day will be perhaps given to you, or in the thoughts of little ones in the church. Again, the child that belongs to you, you, mom, and you, dad, are responsible to help, to learn about, to seek in any manner of external helps, to bring in, to further the maturity and the growth and development of your child in the Lord. Herman Bavink, a Reformed theologian, uh, comments on the family this way. He says, quote, children are a blessing and an enrichment. Again, we're thinking of Cain and Abel. I have been given a Cain, or I, I, have, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. A saintly comment of, of Eve's understanding and stewardship of her baby. Herman Bavink, children are a blessing and an enrichment but they place upon parents serious obligations. Serious obligations. And they are the object of their apprehension and their apprehensive concern for many, many years. In a certain sense, one could say that a child's future depends upon that child's nurture. I can only speak of that in a sense of experience, just not to lend great street cred to my understanding of apprehensive concern for many, many years regarding my children, but I guess I could say my mom still worries about me all the time. Maybe she's overbearing, I don't know. She worries about me and how you all treat me. Um, but it's true for many of you, parents worry about their kids. It's, you know. It, it, they're always your son. You hear that all the time. They're always, they're always going to be my son. They're always going to be my daughter. They're always my daughter. They're always my son. The, the, the sense of you, you, God gave them to you, and you have that sense of serious obligation from the moment they come into your life. And they are then, from that moment forward, the object of your apprehensive concern for the rest of your life. You will never raise a child till they're 18. You will raise them in your thoughts and your mind emotionally forever. So it's at the very beginning that you have to consider uh, fully what it means to raise not simply a flesh and bone person, but a child, a human being, spiritually, psych psychologically, physically, and emotionally, what it means to raise a little one before the Lord. Practical implications of this principle are far-reaching. And, and of course, I would love to sit here and go through all of them with you, but I can't. So I pick one. This seems to be driven on from this text that we need to consider together of what it means to parent 
our children and nurture them wisely. The principle that I want to draw your attention to is in verse 2 of the text, seen through Adam and Eve, and that is we, mom and dad, Adam and Eve, must nurture our children for character formation through hard work. Let me give that to you one more time. We'll see it in the text just briefly, and we'll work towards our conclusion. I've laid down already the larger premise, and that is it's your responsibility to nurture your child. What I'm saying is found in verse 2 is the type of nurture that we see from Adam and Eve, which is still considered critical for character formation. That is, nurture your child for character formation through hard work. Look at verse 2. Um, again, and, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now I'm driving you towards the consideration of character formation through hard work. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. And Cain, a worker of the ground. You, you see, consider all of the teaching and instruction that went into Abel being able to oversee livestock domesticated livestock. It's not like he just like, decided one day, I'm just going ho- to take over the sheep. And then he just decided to figure out how to do it. It, it, it. It's training, it's teaching, and it's instructional. It's pedagogical. It's relations shared through hard work for character formation. Same, same with uh, uh, Cain, a worker of the ground. Has anybody ever tried to grow something and it died like right away? You, you realize it's not just nothingness to work the ground. A foundation must be laid in the soil. You must know what the soil has, what it doesn't have, what it needs. And, and that kind of knowledge base needs to be, therefore, transmitted to the children. If they are to rise up, as Cain did, to be a worker of the ground. I want you to consider just briefly how hard work plays a pivotal role in character formation. You see, Adam and Eve's parental undertaking to clearly and obviously require, teach, and oversee particular tasks for their children is an important part of parenting for character formation. When I say to you character formation, as we conceived it in our house as the Thomases, I'm speaking of the shaping of their inner life by both precept and practice. This is what I mean by character formation. The shaping of their inner life by precept and practice. The precept that is then given to Adam and Eve, six days shall you work. They have an idea of labor before the Lord. And then by practice, they assign tasks we just simply jump to verse 2 and find Cain, a very able man of the earth. And, and we find Abel, a very able domesticated keeper of animals and livestock. By precept and by practice, which is critical to character formation. Calvin uh, comments this way about this text. It would have been hard for Cain and Abel to get used to working hard and leading a rather painful life if they had not been prepared for it by their father and mother. So we see here in verse 2, as much in Cain as in Abel, 
a well-ordered life. I guess my challenge underneath point one, to those of us who do have children, I think we need to ask ourselves why we as mom and dad, I know I need to ask myself, and I think I know the answer, so I'll, I'll just keep it to myself. But I have to ask the probing question. I want you to ask the probing question. And aspiring mom and dads, I want you to be haunted by the question. Why do we resist or hesitate to assign, require, and teach hard work in the lives of our children? Why do we do so? If by precept and by practice, there is character formation that goes on. And we know that before the Lord... It is our call to bring character formation to their lives. Why do we resist, hesitate to assign hard work to the lives of our little ones? I have an idea of why we require so little of them. And the scary thought about it for mom and dad is that we tend to care that they be pleased with us. We care far too much about the moment and far too little about their future. We don't want to fight. We don't want to tug of war. We don't want this little one to be displeased. We'd rather have them turn out to be spoiled. But you see, if we're honest, and, and you have this experience, and I have this experience as adults, when we think of it in the lives of our little ones, there are very few activities in your life, and, and maybe you would submit to this and assign to it as well, but I think you really would. There are very few activities in life that can yield deeper personal satisfaction. Think of your little one. Why are they so frustrated all the time? Well, you know, why are they annoyed? Why are they bored? Why? Why are they on the ground doing this number with their legs? Why? Why, why, why this? Why? Why? Well, you know why. You know why. The issue is, will you address it? You know why. Because there are very few things in life that can yield deeper personal satisfaction, even to that little kid, or make the spirit soar with self-worth than meaningful work. How good do you feel when you have meaningful work? And you accomplish something. Parts and pieces that are moving come together in a great synergy and something's performed. Some level of achievement and success at the toil of your hands that you go through. There's very little in life that yields that kind of fruit. Brings that kind of joy. And then we look over this kid and he's like, no, I'm bored. You're like, because you need something meaningful to do. That's, that, that's what it is. Because when I'm bored at my work, when I'm bored with my things, it's because I've lacked the drive to connect it to what the Lord has called me to do. I fail to see its meaningfulness for me. And it's just a job. This kid's life is the same. Why don't we give it what they need? Well, because if once they say, hey, I'm going to give you a meaningful life, clean your room. They're like, that's not what I want. And now you're in the whole thing. Now I gotta make you do it. Now if you don't do it, now I gotta escalate. Yeah, you do. You do. Yes, you do. Let me conclude with this author's thought. I'm going too late. I just want to say so much more. 
But let me conclude with this author's thought. I find it very helpful and purposeful for all of us, I think. He says, when the biggest thrill in life is becoming competent enough on the video game to achieve level five performance, what kind of environment are we creating for our future leaders? When I sit in airports and I watch these testosterone-exuding boys and their shriveled-up shoulders and their ET-looking fingers passing the time on their laptops, I realize that this isn't normal for them. In fact, the term teenager didn't come around until the Industrial Revolution when meaningful society contributions by this age class began to wane. You see, we made them a class of people. Until then, they were young adults. Many on the Pony Express riders were teens. And these guys knew how to ride a horse, handle a gun, think on their feet, spot danger. In some, they knew how to be dependable. God has designed us, you and me, to be productive and live meaningful lives through contributing to one another in a meaningful way. That's called work. Six days shall you work. And one day is to be a Sabbath rest for your nourishment, your recuperation, your worship. Work in our lives or in the lives of our little one is perhaps one of the best ways to self-actualization. Why do we deny it from our little ones? The parental responsibility to nurture your children for character formation. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll help us piece this text together wisely, that as we peer into the thoughts of Scripture and the need for us as parents, aspiring parents, friends of parents, those who may give counsel, those in some measure of conversation and contemplation regarding the lives of the precious little ones that are all around us and the role that we have in their lives is one of cause and effect. I pray that you'll give us the grace that's required to wisely parent, befriend, encourage, nourish the covenant children of this church and those within the sphere of our lives that you've given to each of us. To moms and dads, strengthen us to not be fearful of the little ones, but to be courageous in leadership. That we see their life in the long term, not in the short term. Do what's necessary to lead them into being godly adults. This is your intention for us. Let us receive it by faith. In Christ's name I pray, amen.